0: In Jesus' name, everyone says, amen, amen, amen. Yeah. You can have a seat. So God has just met Moses at a burning bush. God has appeared out of nowhere. And into the ordinary, everyday moment of Moses' life, God comes and creates this burning bush just off in the distance to his right, or maybe it was to his left but just off there in the distance. And God does it there and not right in front of him because God wants to call him to leave his everyday, to leave his ordinary and to go and see what it is that's burning just over there on the horizon. And Moses has to make a choice. He has to make a choice to decide to draw towards the extraordinary. And I want to encourage you to be open to making that choice in your life because there are burning bushes that God places around us all the time. And maybe for us, they're not like some flame in a bush. (laughs) But maybe it's somebody that we meet on the street. Maybe it's a new colleague at work. Maybe it's a moment in a conversation with someone. Maybe we're at a bar or a nightclub or a restaurant or somewhere where we didn't even think God was present. And there is a burning bush before us. I want to empower you as people here in Hong Kong to walk boldly towards the burning bushes to recognize that God often breaks into our ordinary with his extraordinary. And when he does, it's chance and time for us to turn and walk and listen and hear. And as Moses goes over, God says these words to him, don't come any closer, Moses, for the ground that you're standing on is holy ground. And he invites him to remove his sandals. And Moses does so. And we saw last week that that had something to do with the impurities that Moses had on his shoes and the holiness of God, but it actually had far more to do with God's desire to be an intimate community with Moses again. With God's desire to break through all the things that had happened in Moses' life and meet Moses tenderly, intimately, in communion with him. Taking Moses back to Genesis 1 and 2, where Adam and Eve were able to be naked and unashamed in God's presence before the onset of sin And despite all the sin that had been in Moses' life and was continuing to be in his life, God says, remove your sandals because I want you to be naked and unashamed with me again. That nothing you have done, nothing you have said, nothing you have lived would ever take you. Nothing is an obstacle from my intimate relationship with you. I love you. I'm here for you. I want to connect with you. I want your flesh and my spirit to be together. And, And God invites Moses into something that he invites us all into to know that nothing we do can ever hold us back from the grace of God. And, and that God wants to intimately commune with us too. He wants you to be naked and unashamed. And Moses' response to this incredible call of God for him to be naked and unashamed before him, again, in simple words, he says, here I am. Not kind of like, eh, here I am. But here I am. All of me. The good. The bad. The ugly. The me that was for 40 years an oppressor in Egypt. The me that murdered an Egyptian and thought he could bury it and get away with it. The me that fled because I was in fear of my life. Me that came to a new place and pretended that I was somebody that I wasn't. All of me, I now step into you. I now bring to you. And it's in this amazing moment of intimacy that God ministers to Moses. And it's here at this moment When God finally calls Moses to what the true purpose of his life was. And and I need you to hear this. Moses was 80 years old. Adrian, I need you to hear this. Come on, baby. (laughs) Moses was 80 years old at this point in his life, just like Adrian was standing here before you right now. And God said, now is the time for your purpose. Now is the time. Everything that's happened in the last 80 years has shaped and formed you to be the one that I can now use, yes, but now is the time that you're about to live out the calling in your life. And there are some of you in this room who are older than I am, who think that you're at the end, when actually you're at the beginning. You're actually at a moment now with all the wisdom and all the life experience and all the gifting and anointing that has been placed upon your life. Now God's rolling up his sleeves and he's saying, Are you ready? Because your purpose is still here. And so for this 80-year-old man who's standing naked before God and for the first time in 80 years unashamed, God gives him a call. I want to read this to you from Exodus 3 verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drives and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians to, to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. A land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, every you could ever imagine is there. I, I, I love this. God shows up and Moses has removed his sandals and he's communing with God the naked and unashamed moment and then God begins to speak to him. And the first thing he does is he reminds Moses of who he is. He reminds him of his heart of compassion. And we saw this just a couple of weeks ago at the end of chapter 2 when God declares his character. And and he says back in chapter 2, I have heard, I have remembered, I have seen, and I know and because of this, if you remember, I, I drew that out on the whiteboard two weeks ago. And, and because of this, God is saying, this is who I am. This is my character. I'm a God who, who hears. I'm a God who remembers. I'm a God who sees. I'm a God who knows. I'm, I'm for you, he says. And then right here, as he begins to minister to Moses, and as he begins to give Moses his call on his life, he reminds him of all of this. Notice, notice what it says here in, in chapter three, verse seven. He says, I've indeed seen the misery of my people. I've heard them crying out because they're slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering, so I know about their suffering. And now I have come down to rescue them. I'm, I'm gonna be faithful to my covenant of deliverance for my people. He lays it all out there again because he wants Moses to know that everything God is doing is out of a place of compassion and although God is going to do more of this later in the journey of Exodus at this moment he wants Moses to be reminded that he's not like the Egyptian gods the Egyptian gods who are a pantheon of gods who have a hierarchy of power where the Egyptian gods enslave other gods which therefore makes no sense why then humans would enslave people if their gods enslave people God shows up and says I don't enslave people I, I actually am turned towards people. My heart is compassion for people. And I hear their cry, and I'm going to act. And Moses, you can almost sense in this part of the story, it's we're like, yeah, great, let's go. He's thinking God's going to go do something. He has no idea God's about to call him to the hardest thing. He actually says here, he says, I'm going to now send you And I'm going to go and take the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a new and spacious land. This is the first mention of this idea of the promised land that God is going to do for his people. And he mentions two things about this promised land. He says, first of all, it'll be a land flowing with milk and honey. This is a phrase that will get repeated a lot throughout both Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers. The idea that the promised land is not actually literally flowing with milk and honey. What what it is, is it's a place of fruitfulness, a place of great blessing a place of abundance it's God saying I'm going to take you out of a place of slavery and put you into a place of abundance you need to know that as you come out of the slavery to your sin your destination is abundance not abundance financially per se not abundance maybe even in the things that you might want abundance in but the abundance in how God sees fruitfulness in this world the abundance of the kingdom of God at work in your life like it's never been before abundance in God's presence with you, like you've perhaps never felt before. There's always a place of abundance after a place of slavery. Come on, church. And so as as he's journeying his people here, he's saying this land is going to flow with milk and honey. It's like Genesis 1 and 2. It's like a new garden for you, where you're going to be able to live out what it means to truly be human, where you're going to be able to go into the earth and subdue it and, and see it flourish and see it become all that it can be. That's ahead of you. But he says something really important. He says, this is the home of the, and then he says, Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, and they're all there again, okay? In other words, he's saying, I have a promise for you. It's a land that is incredibly fruitful, but right now, it's occupied by other people. It's the home of all these other people, which is really fascinating, because God is saying, I've got a promise for you, but there's a part that you're going to have to play in receiving of that promise. There's a whole bunch of people there that you're going to... Now, this is right at the beginning of the Exodus, and God's going to talk about this a lot more as they go, but even at the start, God's not giving empty promises. He's not saying, hey, it's a great land, don't worry, it's going to be fine, I'll tell you about the rest later. Right up front, he's saying, no, this is a land, but it's the home of these people right now, which means it's a promise that is given to you, but it's a promise that's going to need conquering. And it's really important that you understand how the promises of God work in our lives. It's very rarely that the promises of God are given to us on a silver platter. In fact, the promises of God are actually, I think, and over my experience of of a number of years of serving Christ, I think the promises of God are the primary way by which God disciples us as his people. Because think of it this way. So often, when God wants to give us something something that is so good to us, when he wants to do something that's good for us, he will demand something good from us. And this is because God sees his promises at work in our lives, and he wants to partner with us. You know, in the promises of God, we are not silent passengers. We are active partners. Now, now be careful here, because that doesn't mean that your strength and your great wisdom and your ability will bring about the promises of God in your life. That's not what this is talking about. What it's talking about, though, is that you're going to have to align yourself to the promises that God has spoken over you. And that's going to require three things, obedience, trust, and faith. And, and it wasn't going to be Moses' strength and Moses' wisdom and all the things that Moses is great at that would get Israel uh, out of Egypt and into the promised land. And it wasn't going to be all those things that Joshua would have that would enable them to conquer the promised land. What would enable that was obedience, trust, and faith. And some of you in this room you're struggling with this because you're asking for the promises of God, but you're not willing to play your part in those promises. And every promise that he will speak over your life will always call you to a deeper level of discipleship. It will always call you to walk in obedience and faith and trust in the promise that God has spoken over you. And God is doing this for Moses because he's saying, I'm going to do all this stuff, but Moses, there's a role for you to play here. And God is inviting Moses To be willing to play his part. Will you have the obedience and trust and faith, Moses, to walk with me? And I feel like the Holy Spirit is saying to us here in Hong Kong in this hour, will you, the church of Hong Kong, have the obedience, trust, and faith to see the 90% of this city who don't know me come to faith? So I, I think he has a promise over Hong Kong. Maybe I'm the only one here. That thinks God has a promise over Hong Kong. Anyone else think that God maybe has a promise over Hong Kong, right? But the church is sorely mistaken if we think God is going to deliver that promise on a silver platter. We need to rise up in obedience. We need to rise up in trust. We need to rise up in faith if we really want to see our city changed for Jesus Christ. Now, how does Moses reply to this? Notice what he says here. He says, uh, uh, says, verse 9, he says, Now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way that the Egyptians are oppressing them, so now, I, so now, um, so now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Moses' honest words, Who am I? This betrays two things about Moses. The first is he's come a long way. Because 40 years ago, he was like, Look at me. 40 years ago, he was the prince of Egypt. 40 years ago, he was clothed in power and prestige, so much so that he thought he could kill an Egyptian and get away with it. Now, 40 years later, he is so stripped down of all his identity, all his privilege, all of his power, that when God shows up and says, I'm gonna take you back to Egypt, he's like, you should have done that 40 years ago. Can you hear, hear Moses' heart here? Like, 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 I'm nothing now. Why, why didn't you come 40 years ago and, and, and ask me to do it? Then, because then I had power, then I had prestige, then I had influence. Now I'm nothing. You're 40 years late, God. I wonder if anyone in this room feels like the promises of God are a bit late in their life. Like if only, God, you had called me 10 years ago when I had that great job and all that money. Come on, church. It's so interesting that we put the time frames of God in our hands. And God's like, no, 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 Moses. You don't realize now is the time. Because you saying, who am I, is the qualification for me to about to use you. Because notice the who am I, though. There's another thing that's going on here. (laughs) The who am I is Moses still thinking it's all about him. Whereas before in Egypt, it was, who am I? I'm a power. I have authority. I have prestige. Now he's like, who am I? I have nothing. I'm a shepherd with nothing at all. But he still thinks that the ability for him to live out the call of God in his life is still down to him. He's just gone from, yeah, I've got all the power to, no, I've got no power. But he's still focused on this. Who am I? How can I do this? I, Basically, Moses is saying, I am not adequate, God, to be able to do the call that you've placed on my life. I'm not adequate. I don't have the skills. I don't have the ability. I certainly don't have the power and prestige that I used to have. I am not adequate, God, for what it is that you're calling for me to do. Now, here's the reality. I think so many of us in this room, that's so often been our conversation with God. When God calls us to things, it's so easy for us to say, I'm, I'm not adequate. I don't have the skills to do that. I remember when God called me to be senior pastor here at the Vine. My, my, my great cry, cry was, I, I'm inadequate. I don't have the adequacy to live out this cool. And you can ask my wife, I still feel that way 10 years later. It's a miracle that you come every Sunday. <laughs> Literally, that's the grace of God over my life that you guys still show up and come here every Sunday because if you understood how inadequate I feel to do what I do you may not come every Sunday (laughs) the grace of God is that way I I, want to say something really important I'm going to put it very bluntly when it comes to the call of God on our lives our adequacy has nothing to do with God's sufficiency come on church has nothing to do with God's sufficiency. See, God is sufficient regardless of whether we feel we're adequate or not. God's not asking Moses whether he's adequate. When God calls you to something, he's not looking to see if you're adequate for it. He's not looking at your resume and going, oh, this guy's qualified. In fact, I think God chooses people because they're not adequate. God calls people because they're not strong enough. They're not capable enough. They don't have the greatest influence. They've not got a great ministry. God raises up those that no one else in the world would look at because he looks upon them and he says, now this person can be used. See, So, so often in the call of God on our lives, God calls us to something that we are not able to accomplish in our own strength. He calls us to something where right now, our current resources cannot achieve. He calls us, in other words, church, to faith. Because if you are adequate to live out the call of God in your life, then you don't need God for his call. And this is one of the first things that Moses has to grapple with. It's this idea that God is calling him and he is inadequate, and that's part of the story. Because notice what God says next. God, God, God says this. He says, verse 12, God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I that is sent to you. When, you. when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you, plural, all of you, will worship God on this mountain. I, I, I love God's reply to Moses' cry of inadequacy. Who am I? God goes, doesn't matter who you are. What matters is who I am. And what matters is that I'm going to be with you and have I chosen to be with you who can be against you some of you that's a word in season in this room right now watching online right now you're not adequate but that's okay because God is more than sufficient and God is with you and when God is with us who can be against us and God says there will be a sign to you that I was with you A sign that you can take to the bank that I journeyed with you. And the sign is this. When you gather around this mountain, you will worship me. I love this idea. God is basically saying, you want to know what the fruit of Exodus is? You want to know what the fruit of freedom is? It's worship. When my people are set free, they can't help but worship me. And he says, this is a sign that despite what might be happening in your life, you will take it as Truth, as a joy, as a privilege to worship me, that your circumstances will not define whether you praise or not. When I have delivered you, you will worship. There's a church in the center of Cairo that dates back to the fourth century, it's one of the oldest churches that there is in Egypt. And this church, despite an incredibly hostile environment since the 4th century, continues to gather to worship today. Because they have understood that what God has done through the Exodus has purchased a heavy price for them to have the freedom to declare the praises of God, even in a very strongly Islamic culture. And their ability to worship, I find, incredibly inspiring and deeply challenging. And I want you to experience a little bit of that. I want you to feel a little bit of that today. And so I want to take you to this particular church now. I want to show you a little bit more of them. They're a very different church to us. They have icons and rituals. They're a Greek Orthodox church, very different to how we might worship here. And yet, in their worship, we can see something that perhaps might help to facilitate ours. Let's go to Egypt. We've come today to the busy, bustling center of Cairo City to actually explore perhaps what is the most central part of the Exodus story itself. Behind me right here is the Hanging Church of Cairo. It's a 4th century Coptic Orthodox Church, making this perhaps the oldest worshiping community in Egypt today. This church truly has a remarkable story and I can't wait to show you around. The Hanging Church is named for its location above the gatehouse of an ancient Babylon fortress, where its nave is actually suspended without trusts over the passage of the fortress, giving the structure the impression that it's hanging in the air. The church itself is approached by 29 steps, leading early travellers to Cairo to dub it the Staircase Church. The entrance from the street is through iron gates under a pointed stone arch, The 19th century façade with twin bell towers is then seen beyond a narrow courtyard decorated with modern biblical art. Up the steps and through the entrance is the main chapel, the entrance of which leads to an outer porch that dates back to the 11th century. But as beautiful as the structure of the church is, its real power rests in the stories that are found within it. One such story is found right here along the main wall of the church itself. This inscription here is in Arabic, uh, so that anybody walking here could read it. And it's actually a summary of that moment where Jesus meets the woman at the well and tells her that there is a water she could drink that will never run out. And here's the great thing. The church, right below that inscription, has created two taps. Now, they're boarded up here. But in centuries before, these two taps would provide sanitized running water to the poor people of Cairo. This was the church's social justice outreach. And the people would come here, they would take the clean, sanitized water, and at the same time read about a God who can provide water that would never run out. I mean, this is the gospel at work. This is the word and works side by side. One of the fascinating things about the Coptic Church is their deep connection to Christianity's Jewish roots. In fact, a great example of that is found right here at the entrance to this particular church. I want you to see something really cool here. You'll notice that the Star of David is worked into the wood of the door right here at the entrance. And this has significant theological meaning. What the Coptics are saying is before you even go inside the church to worship Jesus, you have to first enter through the doorway of the Old Testament. And when you think about us, now understanding what Christ has done in liberating us out of the slavery of our sin and bringing us into the freedom of our promised land in grace and forgiveness, well, we only can really understand the beauty of that when we link it to the original Exodus story in the Old Testament itself. Like the Coptics, so also for us. We understand Jesus through the doorway of the Old Testament. The storytelling doesn't stop at the doorway. Right inside the main entrance is a beautiful, spacious courtyard leading to the steps that take worshippers to the main chapel. The courtyard is covered in modern biblical art telling stories of various Old Testament and New Testament events specifically as they relate to Egypt. You know, just being here and being surrounded by all these mosaics and this beautiful iconography, I mean, you really get the sense of how important storytelling and remembering is to the Coptic practice of worship. And to find out a little bit more about that, I thought it would be great to sit down with one of the priests here, actually the priest that leads the morning prayers, and talk with them a little bit more about how central all of this beautiful art is to the way they practice their faith. Father Samuel, we're so grateful uh, that you would host us in your ch- beautiful church and yes. show us a little bit about the Coptic worship. Yes. Uh, maybe you could tell me a little bit about some of the icons that Yes, it was, pleasure. Yes, yeah. it was pleasure Thank you. I
1: know.
0: Yeah.
1: This is church is, is the name of the Virgin Mary and Saint Demiana. It's called the Hanging Church. Why right. we called it the Hanging Church? Because it was built above the two fortress Roman fortress. As uh, the ancient people put palm tree above the fortress mm-hmm. and built the church above the fortress without any foundation. Use uh palm, palm trees and stones as a pavilion to this uh, church. Wow. Because it's called the hanging church. As we see the the shape of the roof is made made by wood because the heavy in the 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 engineering style. Right, 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 yes. right. Uh, this uh, church is, was built as a basilican style. Okay. It's famous uh, for columns and arches. Uh, and as we see, it's uh, built as a Noah's Ark.
0: As Noah's Ark? Yes.
1: Oh, I, didn't,
0: I can see that with the, with the way yes. the, wood, the roof it, is on the Yes, oh, and wow. the,
1: the windows. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, as, as we see, we, if you, if you uh, see the column... We yes. can found uh, eight columns, okay, which represent to the eight persons who's in the Noah's Ark. Oh. Noah's his wife, his three sons, and his wife. Yes. Yes. Oh wow. Okay. <laughs> and why why is Noah's Ark so important? Yes, because the Noah's Ark is symbol of salvation, and mm. the church is is a symbol of the, is is a, make a salvation for people. Uh, in the church, for wow. and I know for the Coptic Church, yes. the emphasis of salvation
0: is very important. Yes. Right? Yes. Are there other elements here that shows?
1: Yes. Set? Yeah. This icon says, uh, symbol of the heaven, we can find Jesus Christ in the middle, right. and the Virgin Mary, and Saint John the Baptist, and the Archangel uh, Gabriel, okay. and Archangel uh, Michael, yeah. and Saint Peter, Saint Paul. Wow. Yes. And and. I understand
0: Paul is very central, and Peter is also very central to the Coptic church. Yes. Right, right, yes.
1: right, right. Okay, yes. very interesting. This, this icon is made of three items, ivory, ebony, and ebonus. Okay. Collected together without any glue, as a puzzle. Oh, wow. Yes, we can see. And those three
0: elements, do they represent, like, the trinity? Yes, yes. Okay, Show maybe show me here.
1: As you see, this is ivory. Mm-hmm. This epony mm-hmm. and cedars. Oh, okay. Yes, it is collected together as a puzzle. Gathered together as a puzzle. It's a puzzle. Yes. Oh, <laughs> it moves. <laughs> oh no way! Uh, we can see the ancient this this icon says come back to the 11th century. Right. We can see the right. the the worker how made the shape. Is I- in the ivory without any machines, without any laser cuts, it's made Yes, and collected the collectors' ivory was even with cedars, together.
0: Now I know that there is a famous staircase here. Yes. Can you explain to me the staircase? Maybe take me there and show me. Uh,
1: okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. We can found here is two doors. Oh, the doors! I didn't in, notice in, the doors before. Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> this is doors. It, when when it's open, we found the way to escape from this church it's used in the ancient time okay because if if anyone come to the church to kill people mm-hmm. uh, you have to way. you have to stay in the church to be a martyrs like the, like our martyrs here yes or to escape from this way to go a new generation in christianity and of course and both yes. is
0: both is important yeah <laughs> yes. so people would actually they would be worshipping here yes and maybe if some danger comes in yes. the doors would open, open and yes. they would go and escape that way yes wow
1: from here we can see yeah you can yeah amazing yes yeah. we have two escape ways this is way to the uh, people and this this escape way to a small room okay yes from here Oh wow. These stairs to a small room. Uh-huh. If we didn't fin- finish the serve, the priest and uh, one of the deacons uh, yes. take uh, take a, a communion and mm-hmm. go in this church and close the door and continue the. Liturgy continues. uh, Okay.
0: Let let me understand this, because I think this is very beautiful. So if people are having a service here, yes, and somebody comes in, in in the old days, and it's dangerous, Mm. they would flee Mm. for their lives, but you would then go and still finish the service. Yes. Yes. (laughs) That's how important the worship is. Yes. To keep the worship going. Yes. Wow, that is a powerful story. (laughs) Thank you so much. I mean, this... For me, is just so powerful to see the commitment to worship in Egypt yes. for for so many, so many centuries. Yes. Yes. it's just an amazing thing. So, why is all of this important? I mean, why have we come to this church today and understood its iconography and art and had examples of the worship here? Well, when God first appears to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter three. He tells Moses the reason for the Exodus in the first place. He tells him why he's going to send him back to Pharaoh to demand for the people to be let go and why he wants them to move from slavery to freedom. And it's for one simple reason and that is to worship. God desires to deliver His people so they would be free to worship Him. And that's why this church matters because all the people that gather here today in central Cairo are proof that the fruit of the Exodus is still ongoing. It's proof that people can still gather to be free to worship Jesus today. And that should be an encouragement to all of us. When you think about you and your freedom of worship, you should never take that freedom for granted. People have sacrificed and paid the price for thousands of years. And God is not just the God of the original Exodus. He is also the God of your exodus too. And the challenge for you is to ask yourself this. Are you truly free to worship? And are you doing it in your everyday life? Doing that will honor God and will honor the exodus itself. This, um, this question of whether we're truly free to worship, I think is a question that is quite relevant for our church here in Hong Kong in this time. Perhaps it's a relevant question for us as we think about our future here in this city. And the story of The Hanging Church inspires me deeply because I want you to see the focus that they have at that church. Their focus is not on the political system and the political situation that they're in, although that's a very tricky situation in Egypt. Their focus isn't on the cultural realities of being a minority Christian community in a majority Islamic culture. Their focus is not even on whether somebody might come into that building with a bomb and try to kill people in their services. Their focus is on God and worshipping him. So much so that if somebody does come in to bomb them, the priest will not flee with everybody but we'll take some icon and some communion, we'll go down into that passageway and finish the service before he would look after his own life. I love it in the film where, when, when, when Father Samuel said that to me, I was like, kind of thought like he was sort of half joking, you know, I'm like, really, really? And he's like, yes, yes, of course. Almost like, would you not do that? You know, like, <laughs> And I'm like, no, I would run really fast and throw vine people behind me. No, just kidding. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. (laughs) But what a deep challenge, isn't it? Like we we worry, and maybe rightly so, what's our freedoms going to be like in Hong Kong to worship? We are so free to worship. We do not have things on the bottom of our floors that we need to escape down if somebody comes in to kill us. Are you with me, church? And they are so focused. worship because they've come to understand the beauty of the exodus, that God sets us free so we can worship, sets us free so that we might be a sign to the world of that freedom. I mean, this church in the center of Cairo today, surrounded by all that it's surrounded by, is a sign that the exodus actually happened. And I love how God says it here. He says, this will be a sign to you. You will gather to worship. This is always what worship is. It is a sign to a tired and weary world that God is true. His promises are right. And he delivers his people. And I love how God says here, it'll be a sign to you after you come out of Egypt. I love this because so often when God calls us to things, we want a sign today. Give me a sign first and then I'll do what you ask me to. Give me a sign, Lord. We're like, oh, I think God's calling me this. God, just confirm it with a sign. And God says to Moses, I'll give you a sign, but it will come at the end. I'll give you a sign after you've been obedient and trustful and faithful. And you will gather around this mountain, and it will be a sign. And from that point forward, it will be a sign for all centuries and centuries and centuries of the power that there is for a God to deliver his people. The sign will come at the end to tell you that I was with you the whole way. The the filming, I'm going to finish with a story. I am finishing. I'm going to finish with a story. The day that we filmed in the Hanging Church was day seven of 23 days of filming in Egypt. And it was quite easily the hardest day of filming for me. Not because it was technically difficult, but because of how I was feeling inside. We We were six days in or seven days in. And I have to say, it was such a battle to even get to Egypt. Four years of canceled visas, of not getting security clearances, of not knowing the, uh, whether the company we were working with in Egypt was going to come through for us. Four years of ups and downs. And every step of the way, pushing and pressing on and trying to do it and wondering, what are we doing? Is this really going to happen for us or whatever? And then we finally get to Egypt and we start filming. And the filming's going relatively well, but self-doubt and insecurity is, is kind of really there for me. And I'm wrestling with this reality of, have I just tried to make this work in my own effort? Like, is God really in this? I mean, is this really going to happen? Is this going to go through? Like, like is this going to be a blessing to the church in Hong Kong? Is this actually going to help anyone? And, and the day before we filmed at the Hanging Church, one of our crew members from the UK got a phone call from his wife. His wife was pregnant, and she was supposed to give birth seven weeks after the end of filming. But she calls him and says, my waters are just broken, and I'm heading to the hospital. So he understandably jumps on a plane that day and flies back to the UK and he manages to get there in time for the birth. Amazing thing. But we were a person down on our shoot as well. And that was frustrating me as well. Like, oh God, why have we come all this way? And now like all this stuff is happening and why did that person come? God, what are you up to? Are you even in this? Well, at the end of the filming with Father Samuel, I I pretended like I was happy. (laughs) Father Samuel, He's such a nice guy, right? Like, it's like, how can you not, like, be nice around him? But inside, I was like, ah, my attitude was really bad. And at the end of it, after we had finished filming, he said, "Uh, Andrew, I'd like you to come to my office. I want to share Egyptian tea with you. But you can't bring your cameras because it's a sacred place. And I'm like, well, internally, I was like, well, if I can't take my cameras, what's the point in going? (laughs) Are you with me, church? (laughs) Don't be with me. Don't be with me. (laughs) But I, and so I'm like having this bad attitude. I'm like, I'm not sure. And we had more filming to do in other places that day. So I was looking at my watch, looking at the schedule. And I remember like our Egyptian crew, one of the Egyptian guys that we had hired to help us with all the locations, he took me aside into a private place. It's, like, it's just like you know when Jesus was bad, and the disciples had to take Jesus to the side, you know, and speak. so he takes me to the side, and he goes, Andrew, you need to understand when when an Egyptian priest invites you for a tea, you do not say no. It's offensive if you say no. So I'm like, are you telling me I have to do this? He's like, you have to do this. So I'm like, okay, come on, let's go. Okay, I don't even like Egyptian tea, but that's fine. I'll go. So myself, on my own, no cameras, no nothing, we go into his room and we sit down. And Father Sam was such a nice guy, you know, he, he, he sits me down in a chair next to his, ta- his desk. He's got this big, massive, ornate desk. I sit down, there's a Bible open on his desk. Uh, there's a Bible open on my desk, by the way, most of the time. <laughs> there's a big Bible open on his desk, and on top of the Bible is, a, is an icon, one of, one of the icons. It's a, it's a wooden cross. And immediately, my eyes are drawn to this cross. And I'm trying to think, what am I going to talk about with Father Samuel? You know? so, so I'm like, oh, nice cross. Can I, can I have a look at the cross? So Father Samuel takes the cross off his Bible. He passes it over to me, and I look at it. Now, it's a cross where there are two images on both sides. On one, image, on one side, it's the uh, ascension of Jesus, Jesus floating up into heaven. On the other side, it's Jesus on the cross, bleeding on the cross. It was quite gruesome. It was kind of like one of these icons where you can turn it like this. But what struck me as soon as I saw it was that on the cross at the top and the bottom were massive pieces of grapes, pitches of grapes, and a little vine that was connected to the grapes. And I, and I looked at this cross, and I, I said to him, what does this mean? What is this cross, what does it mean? And he said, oh, this was made by the nuns in our nunnery, just uh, by, the, by the side of the church. And this is the cross that says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And I, I started to like well up with tears, Because I mean, this guy didn't know all of the emotions that were going around in my heart that day. But God knew, and God had provided a sign. Not at the start, not even in the middle, not even at the beginning of year four. But when I had finally gone to Egypt, we'd finally started recording, and there it was. I was with you the whole time. And that just released worship. It just released gratitude and thankfulness that my God was with me the whole time, even though so often I felt like He was distant. And I was literally like welling up with tears. And I think Father Samuel thought that maybe the icon was having an effect on me or something, you know. (laughs) And he said, would you like to keep it? And so this is now one of my favorite possessions. Here it is. This is it. You can see it up here. You can see a big picture of it. Look at that. Look. There's that side. And then there's the not so nice side where he's bleeding and stuff. But, but can you see the grapes? Top, top, bottom. You can have a look at this afterwards if you'd like to look at this. It's one of my, honestly, one of my great, I'm gonna place it on my Bible, one of my great treasures. <laughs> it released me to worship. And I want you to know that God has a call on your life that you're not adequate for. And if you're part of the church here in Hong Kong right now, there's an important call on your life. And that is to be someone who can testify and be a sign to the world that God's promises are true, that He can bring freedom, and that He can truly set us free by His grace. And as we sing, as we go about our workplace, as we meet God in various areas of our lives, may we constantly be a symbol of the freedom of God. Yeah, Amen. Amen. I wonder whether you stand me. I want to pray for us, and I want to release us into a moment of worship together. I invite you just to open your hands. Lord, we come before you now grateful for the example of the Hanging Church in Cairo, for Father Samuel and the other priests, for the worshipers in that community there. Father, as we are here in Hong Kong and we have some questions about our religious freedoms in our city, and as those questions perhaps are over us at this time and we are wondering what the future might hold, Father, thank you for this reminder that our focus isn't on those things. Our focus is on you and of the incredible privilege we have right now to worship you, to be free to gather in this room, to open our hearts and to declare with our voices, to be a sign in our city that your promises are true. Father, I pray for anyone in this room that feels inadequate for the call of God on their lives. I pray that, Lord, you would fill them today with your spirit again and tell them I am with you, that I am sufficient for your inadequacy. Lord, I pray that you would release worship in this place as we recognize that our freedom from sin releases us to a place of gratitude, to a place of offering our hearts to you and a worship to you. And Lord, as we worship you now, come Holy Spirit. On Pentecost Sunday, they gathered in that room. Your spirit fell, and they worshipped you. They worshipped you in multiple tongues and languages so that everybody who didn't know you in their city could come to know Jesus. That was a sign of the power of the freedom of worship led by the spirit. And Lord, as we worship you now, would you move in the spirit? And with all the cultures that are represented in this room, may we be your hands and feet to a tired and weary Hong Kong. Can we bring the hope of the gospel in this time?